Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, it's Julia Hartley Brewer here, and I can't wait to join Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of his podcast. And you can be there too. It's on Wednesday, 22nd of September at 7pm. Tickets cost just £5, or if you're a Spike supporter, you can get your ticket for free. So get your tickets now before they're all gone. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash events to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Boris's Cabinet Reshuffle, Insulate Britain, Emma Raducanu and AOC at the Met Gala. So Boris has finally done a reshuffle. He's pretty much kept the whole of his team since before the pandemic. A lot of the kind of deadwood has been clinging on uh, for dear life. Tom, um, what moves have really stood out for you in this? Well, it was definitely more drastic than I think anyone else was expecting. I mean, it was long overdue insofar as, as you say, there were a lot of people who kind of ended up with a bit of stay of execution because of the fact of the pandemic in some cases because of their you know implication in the broader policy i guess i mean matt hancock could quite conceivably still be there if he hadn't shown his own way out um, as a result of his affair when the pressure got too much but yes people like gavin williamson were obviously up for the chop for a very long time um i feel a tiniest bit bad for him insofar as you know he was basically made to carry the can for a policy in relation to schools that he often didn't really have much involved in in making you yeah know? i mean it was really the kind of the so-called quad of ministers of gove of Johnson, Sunak and the health secretary, depending on who that was at any one time, who were really making the decisions. But if you look at his gaffes throughout his, you know, ministerial career, telling Russia to go away and shut up, being in the <laughs> middle of that Huawei leak, um, allegedly, all of these different things. I mean, you can't help but feel, as many of his detractors say, that it was purely because he used to be chief whip and he knows where the bodies were buried, yeah. that um, he was still sticking around. But Nevertheless, it's there's a few more interesting ones in there, I guess. I think um, the nod being given to Liz Truss, obviously Dominic Raab being demoted after the whole Kabul debacle, um, reflects how increasingly her stock is kind of rising, particularly in Tory circles. She kind of mm. tops the con home polls regularly at the moment. It's the only one who's really been able to get on and crack on with things in the midst of the pandemic, all these rollover trade deals and all the rest of it. But I think the Gove, um, being, Gove being moved to housing, but also sorting out levelling up is also quite interesting as far as what we're really seeing there is an attempt to try and get a kind of post-pandemic legacy and vision together. Because so yeah. far, you know, we've been told that it's going to be about levelling up. But at the same time, that's really remained a slogan. So just sending in who is seen as their kind of most efficient sort of minister to go in there and give that project a little bit of meaning. So yes, a lot of deadwood cleared. It probably should have been cleared a long time ago. But this is a kind of point in which you realise that the government still is thrashing around for what it is for really yeah. at the end of the day and trying to revisit that after all of that naturally being put on hold for the past 18 months. Yeah. And, and that is the question at the heart of it. It's it's something, you know, people are forever trying to de determine what Boris is all about. And do we have a clearer sense of that from this, do you think, Ella? No, I don't think so, unsurprisingly, because I mean, the, the, the most shocking changes were the ones that were 
inevitable and obvious, like Rob being punished for his holiday away <laughs> and Gam Willington being ditched. And then people like Jen Rick with the whole West Ferry scandal, that being an obvious emotion. But the the thing that tells you that there's nothing is really changing, I think, is actually the Gove promotion. Because if you look at what's happening today outside Parliament, there's a protest um, led by leaseholders in relation to the cladding scandal. You know, UK housing is an absolute shit show from top to bottom, uh, not just in terms of the um, lack of housing, but also the way in which the government is dealing with housing, the cladding sc- scandal being an example of that. That's Jenrick's legacy. And I think what Gove's being sent in to do is not be innovative in the many ways that we've talked about the need for housing to be innovative on this podcast, not to have any kind of big ideas about infrastructure, but to kind of settle the disquiet that's going on. One of the big concerns for the Tories will be the fact that they have all this focus on the red wall and they've got their blue wall Mm. grumbling away, being concerned about primarily planning uh, and housing and nimbyish kind of desires to stop things from being built in their backyard. And I think that is also what's going to be Gove's role. So it's it's all very safe. There's been a kind of discussion about the ruthlessness of Boris Johnson and actually, I don't. There was, you know, I don't think it has been particularly ruthless. There hasn't been any real sacrifices. All the people who are in the main jobs have stayed there. Uh, Bar Dominic Graham, you know, Pretty Patel, Sajid Javid, Kwasi Kwarteng. All the, you know, it's it's quietly ticking along. The real question is not what the cabinet looks like, but what the policies are going to be, as it always is. You know, people like to engage in the kind of gossip of a cabinet reshuffle, but there's no sign, particularly when it comes to their continuation of screwing around with COVID policy that we're going to come on to talk about, that anything really is going to change. I mean, there's been a lot of disquiet um, on the Tory right, particularly since, I mean, we talked a bit about this last week, since the social care kind of package came forward, um, you know, tax rising, potentially rising taxes to some of the highest levels they've been, you know, since since the war. Does Do these changes address any of that? Do they give us any clue as to, you know, what direction Boris is going in on that front? Well, certainly not in and of itself. I mean, this was, I suppose, a, a crossing of a line for Tory backbenchers, old-style Thatcherites, insofar as they just are attached to the identity of the party of low taxes. They're mm. ideologically aligned with that. But it's a question of what you then do with that, <laughs> really, yeah. at the end of the day. Um, and that's where things are coming up wanting, because as Ella was saying, there's these tensions within the new kind of Tory voter base in relation to something like levelling up. I mean, I, I think a lot of the complaints from kind of southern Tory seats about how they're levelling up, but they're levelling us down, you know, these incredibly wealthy <laughs> mm. seats is utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I think they'll actually hold on to a lot of those places. Or if nothing else, they're more than likely to pick up even, or, you know, get eat more into the kind of red wall, if you like, and make up for any potential losses there. But um, it's not straightforward. I think what's interesting as well is that, again, Labour's inability to sort of respond to this. Yeah. Um, Wes Streeting is a shadow cabinet minister for child poverty, which I don't think is actually a actual minister, so I don't know who he's shadowing, but nevertheless um, was on the radio this morning talking about, now of course we're faced with a Tory government which is presiding over the highest tax burden since the war, which isn't afraid of spending. So now the question is about how that money can be spent effectively. Yeah. And you think they're also kind of a little bit lost. You yeah. know, it's just become under Keir Starmer, quite understandably, the kind of party of performative anti-cronyism in relation to what might happen with Tory donors, etc., which is mucky, but happens mm. with many administrations. Um, and also just picking them up when things go wrong, which doesn't seem to me to be much of an ideological response <laughs> either. So yeah, there's there's not a lot of it across the board, it feels like. Are you really saying that Keir Starmer's 14,000 treaties on what he stands for is not going to clarify <laughs> where, where Labour is going? I mean, we should talk a bit about Labour. I mean, it, it, they are just 
they've been found wanting throughout the pandemic. And now even after the pandemic, it seems as if they're still struggling to find a kind of purpose or a niche or you know, direction. Yeah, and there's been there's been um, some in the Labour Party, um, some supporters, some MPs raising the a bit of disquiet about the fact that, for example, Nadine Dorries got put in as cabinet minister mm. for um, as culture secretary, not because it might be a problem that, for example, we've had something you know like eleven culture secretaries in however long it, it's a it's, it's not seen it's as the most chairs. important role no Let's but it it's way. famously seen as the fun job you know yeah, you go yeah. and run around doing park and then you just go to the brit awards and if you're a tory you just gesture meanly at the bbc from time to time <laughs> yeah but but, yeah. That, but but it is a role that has a certain amount of um importance particularly now when we're talking about the fact that the uh, pandemic has affected that industry so seriously you'd want someone in there with a bit of innov- innovation some ideas to how to kind of kick re-kick start not just live music venues but also deal with issues around sport. They've picked up on the fact that she, for example, mixed up Chuck Muna and Chris Eubank and also then mixed up Ash Saka and um, Pfizer Shaheen, you know, uh, criticisable things, but not but not a kind of substantial mounting of what it is that their idea should be about a culture secretary. There's also the fact that they, you know, every party does this when there is a reshuffle they moan about what the other reshuffles is and make cheap points um about the fact that this doesn't really mean anything for anyone hmm. but none but then equally don't give any example of what they think should be the policies of the day i mean we saw this with the kind of fuss around universal credit and the you know the righteous fuss about the cut in universal credit um and Keir Starmer thinking he'd got a gotcha on Boris Johnson for saying that it would the 20 pound cut would mean that people would have to work an extra 9 hours a week but really giving the impression that all they want was that £20 back and not having anything, not actually saying £20 is nothing for families. This is peanuts. This is ridiculous. They're always kind of playing a low ball. It's always really lacking, as Tom says, in terms of ideas. And none of it is future orientated. I mean, if there is one party that doesn't want to talk about pre-pandemic world, it's the Labour Party. They want us to remain in a kind of COVID-infused political sphere for, for forever, it seems like. Yeah, and we should talk very briefly about that before we move on to the next subject. I mean, the government has unveiled its winter plan. There's the sort of plan A of extending the vaccination programme, but slightly more worrying is this plan B of possible vaccine passports, reintroduction of masks potentially. I mean, what have you made of that, Tom? It just feels like there's no ability really for the government to kind of draw a line under things. Mm. We talked about that a lot, but it feels like, of course, no one's really going to be against just you know stressing the kind of interventions which are most effective and also have the least effect on people's lives things like the vaccine program within reason keeping that going voluntarily of course but nevertheless that's the thing that's really allowed us to get a grip on all of this beyond that what are we possibly supposed to do i mean we've talked to it about it until we're blue in the face the complete reorganization of public life at the drop of a hat this kind of ongoing technocratic fiddling where if cases go up we'll maybe we'll ask people to stop um, coming into work, maybe we'll stagger the school hours or maybe mm. this or maybe that. You just cannot sustain this in the long term. It's not only is it completely exhausting, but if you concede that we might have to do that kind of thing in the winter, then you're basically conceding we'll have to do it forever. Yeah. And you just would you just wish that there was more kind of political pressure and more of a kind of political payoff almost in being a bit more honest about that and in stressing that getting back to normal is actually a good thing to do. But obviously there's there's no political pressure in that direction, certainly not coming from the opposition benches at the moment. You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. This is your regular reminder that our show is also available on video. You can watch the Spiked Podcast every Friday on YouTube or via the Spiked website. 
Now, back to the Spike podcast. Insulate Britain, an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion, have um, been blocking the M25 on multiple occasions this week, causing chaos with traffic on one of the UK's busiest roads. I mean, the tactics have got a lot of attention. Um, they seem to have angered a lot of people. I mean, do these environmentalists actually care if they annoy people, Tom? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's a bit the wrong question. You know, people say, aren't you alienating people? Like, yeah. Of course they are. I mean, it's obvious. People would, you know, frustrated drivers were dragging them off of the street whilst the police <laughs> were standing by and asking if they needed anything. You know, I mean, it was really quite striking. Um, and in a way, what I think is, is worth sort of stressing is we talked about it a few weeks ago. They really don't care what ordinary people think. I mean, this is really yeah. a conversation between these kinds of protesters and the kind of cultural elite that they sort of represent values wise and the political elite and one's urging the other one to hurry up and usher in eco-austerity faster. That's basically what's going on here. But it's interesting because obviously Extinction Rebellion, its various offshoots have this whole kind of philosophy of civil disobedience and all the rest of it. And I'm obviously not against civil disobedience in in and of itself. But on the one hand, the thing that would sustain it is a level of popular support. Otherwise it is just stopping you going to work (laughs) um, for a reason that you can barely understand um, and is often completely overblown. Um, And the other thing is, you know, what are they being rebellious for? And as we know, it's just to immiserate the country Mm. (laughs) effectively. So I think kind of asking about the questions of tactics and all the rest of it, it just kind of gets away from the fact that, Ultimately, they're not really in the business of convincing people because I don't think you could convince the broader British public of the wisdom of making their lives worse, which is basically what they want to do. Yeah. And you alluded to this briefly, Tom, but, you know, there was something very strange about the kind of police reaction. And now none of us are in favour of um, the police beating up protesters or, you know, roughing them up or anything like that. But it is strange just how gently they have been treated. There's a clip of a police officer saying, you know, let let us know if you need anything. Mm-hmm. Um, do you need any assistance? That kind of thing. And it is striking the way the Extinction Rebellion protests as well have similarly been treated. And we've had judges come out and say they support Extinction Rebellion in the middle of sentencing them for, you know, disruption. We've had the Met Police say, well, the cause is really important. I mean, what is going on there? Why is why are they treated like no other protesters, essentially? Well, because their, their aims and their politics are like no other politics because every single member of parliament, every, you know, almost sort of bar us and a few others, every political commentator will kind of, dis- you know, despite being a bit annoyed at the fact that Extinction Rebellion does all this ridiculous street theatre or that it's offshoots engage in these kind of like annoying protests they they always finish their sentence with but of course their mm. message is right but of so course important. we need to do something about the climate emergency not about climate change about extinctions rebellions language the climate emergency everyone's on their side and so it would be really terrible for the police to look like they were cracking down on people in, in an optics way who were all about saving the planet and it has to be said you know that the police didn't react like this to the Sarah Everard protests. Mm. They didn't react like this to Black Lives Matter's protests. They certainly didn't react like that to the Brexit protests when that was happening. I remember when, you know, talk about blocking the M25. I remember there was noise about lorry drivers blocking the M25 in favour of um, Brexit around the time of the, um, of the delays. I remember there was 
in a completely different political row discussions about taxi drivers blocking roads in London mm. over the LTNs. And uh, throughout all those discussions, there's been very clear messages from the police and from politicians which say, if you dare to do this, do not de- really hard line. If what you would expect police officers to, to do, there's this kind of weird very bourgeois, very kind of cosseted relationship with the police that these protesters have, where it's meant to be that police officers are there to facilitate your kind of games on the N25. <laughs> yeah. They're there to make sure that you don't what, what piss your pants when you're sat there or end up with not have enough water or don't get cold. That's not what a police officer's role is about. And it actually shows the, the lack of radical sentimentality among these people. Mm. Let's also remember that Insulate Britain's aims are to insulate house, like houses. I mean, it who really... Could, who could be against that? Like, you know, it really a is... protest in favour of double glazing. Yeah, is, and if you look at the average age of some of these protesters, particularly on the M25, you understand why they're so upset. <laughs> yeah. That's probably why the police don't want to manhandle yeah. them. Yeah, and so there's, you, you end up... Tom makes the crucial point, which is that if this was a mass movement, of, like, as I've already mentioned, leaseholders asking for changes to their houses and leaseholders asking... And, you know, people who are stuck in places like the Grenfell Tower who are asking for some building regulations to be put in place if it was linking with that or tapping into some kind of other movement maybe we're having a different discussion but this is just eco dogma of the extreme and it's pissing everyone off yeah i mean it's it's street theatrics and obstructionism in the absence of any of that kind of popular support i mean it's amazing i mean there was one um you got um, ranking of charities and their popularity mm. and apparently not only does Extinction Rebellion come near the bottom but it's only just ahead of the EDL <laughs> so it tells you something about the level of popular support that movement has Absolutely So Emma Raducanu stunned the world at the weekend by winning the US Open she was the first qualifier to win a Grand Slam in history and she did it without dropping a single set but no sooner, even before she picked up the trophy, essentially, Twitter was on hand to remind us that she's an immigrant and that she's mixed race. Tom, what did you make of this response? I thought it was really interesting. First of all, the uniformity of the response. It was mm. like, a you know how every so often a WhatsApp message will go around a group of politicians and they all kind of tweet out a slightly tweaked version of the same message. It yeah. was exactly like that, but it was across the cultural set, the kind of leftish political class. You know, Adil Ray from GMB, Sadiq Khan got involved, um, various other people. And it was all just this essentially saying, she's an immigrant. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? She's dunked on all of these racists. Her prowess <laughs> is fantastic. This is Britain, whatever. Now, on the one hand, you understand the sentiment somewhere in there. Mm. But at the same time, it's quite the cumulative effect of it is a young British woman achieves something absolutely incredible. And everyone stands up and says, she's an immigrant, you know, Yeah. which to me is quite rude and potentially a little bit racist. I mean, it's kind of interesting insofar as you have this identity politics, which because it wants to stress difference all of the time, because it constantly wants to virtue signal against what it perceives to be a um, racist blob in society um, and constantly wanting to dunk on those kind of imagined bigoted masses that it takes the form of constantly insisting on difference Mm. and so therefore not only do they just not see one of their fellow citizens succeeding but they just even the individual achievement gets completely crowded out you know it just becomes this kind of overly kind of exoticized kind of this is a product of you know romanian grit and chinese hardware it almost kind of you know rehabilitates and quite kind of uh, a, a strange um, process of just othering mm. kind of ethnic minority Britons of treating their successes not as something that um, are kind of universal but are something which are very very specific because of their very very specific identity and there's just no getting away from that this tick that they have mm. is to racialize ultimately even if there are uh, 
as they would see it, slightly better intentions involved in that, I guess. Yeah, and, and there's always this sense that um, immigrants are exceptional, which I just find very strange because, I, you know, if I were to make a case for immigration, I would say, well, they're just like you or me. Mm. But I think one of the reasons that kind of tendency to kind of exceptionalise these immigrants comes out is because then you can contrast them with the, you know, the horrible natives, essentially. <laughs> that seems to also be one of the drivers behind this celebration of, of immigration and diversity. Yeah. And but and the, the funny thing about Radicanu is that it's also even in their kind of othering of her, actually, which is what I think you're saying, and it's true, there's an awkwardness about it because of the fact that she has so openly talked about how proud she is of her Chinese heritage, which is doesn't sit well with lots of those same media commentators. I mean, she mentioned, uh, she did gave this um, speech and thanked everyone. She's huge now in China because she spoke in Mandarin and um, is kind of adding to her worldwide fame. But then she also said that she draws, drew so much of her um, resilience and her self-discipline from her mother and from her, she kind of talked about the way in which people in China had a sense of um, never stopping and believing themselves. And words like that, that actually don't resonate with today's cultural set. So self-resilience is mm. actually being, uh, is a dirty word. Discipline is a dirty word. It's all about actually, as we've seen from the kind of fawning over um, Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles or any of these things that we've talked about on the podcast. It's all about celebrating your vulnerabilities. Yeah. And here you have Emma Raducanu coming on and and being amazing and saying, actually, it's because I have I have a sense of grit and I have a sense of what the importance of being kind of hard nosed, and there's also, there's an inability to kind of deal with that as well. It's really depressing that identity gets used as this, especially with someone so young. If you're 18 and you're trying to think about what kind of person you are. Um, you might think about yourself as someone from a nation, and particularly if you're a sports person, you would obviously think like that. But taking into account her mixed race heritage, taking into account the fact that she's also an 18 year old that hasn't figured out who she is yet, really, mm. apart from being now an, an international superstar in the sporting stage, it's it feels very wrong to try and pinhole her into something that you might particularly see her being throughout the rest of her life. She'll always be the immigrant mm. tennis star. That feels very wrong for someone so young as well. And also, as you were saying, Fraser, to just kind of use her. Success is just as if that makes the case for immigration for you. It's an mm. incredibly curious thing to do. I mean, first of all, because it's ridiculous. I mean, this is an argument that you have to have out in society. If you want a more liberal approach to immigration as we do, then you need to argue for it. You can't assume that um, people momentarily taking a like to a tennis player of immigrant background I mean, see, you like them really, therefore it's fine. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous when you yeah. think about it. But also, um, Raki Basar made this point on Spike this week, which is to kind of individualise the discussion in that way is actually playing a bit of a dangerous game yeah. because if you just take individual su immigrant success stories if you like as the kind of slam dunk the slam dunk argument for immigration then you're going to have people on the far right who are going to use the kind of individual cases of mm. um, immigrants in relation to questions of radicalization in relations to this in relation to crime or whatever and again try to extrapolate that in a way to try and turn people off the concepts so rather than having a proper political discussion you end up trading these kinds of ridiculous kind of statements and that's something which is a dangerous road to go down definitely. also the fact that just you want the emma radicanus to come as well and their families you also want the people who are you know talking about hgv drivers and skill shortages you want people who are an average joe who's never going to be a tennis star there's a, there ends up being a discussion about good immigrants and mm. bad bad immigrants we can't just have an immigration policy for future tennis yeah. stars it would be ridiculous it's incredibly <laughs> reductive you're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you're enjoying the show so far, why not give us a rating and a review? 
It really helps other like-minded people find the show. It's really easy to do. Just search for The Spike Podcast with whoever provides your podcast and give us a nice, generous five stars. Now, back to The Spike Podcast. So every year, the Met Gala always draws all the top celebrities and usually in some quite uh, zany, allegedly fashionable outfits. This year, the outfit that caught the most attention belonged to Congresswoman AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was wearing a white flowy dress that said, tax the rich. I mean, Tom, the rich must have been quaking in their boots when they saw this, right? Well, that's why that she kind of tried to justify it, which I think was quite interesting. <laughs> she made these comments to Vogue. It was something to the effect of saying, I wanted to in- enjoy the party, but also kind of put them a little bit une- at ease or whatever. Mm. And it's a ridiculous statement for two reasons. First of all, because um, at the Met Gala, at any of these kind of celebrity gatherings, they're all engaged in kind of very kind of platitudinous political statements. Yeah. You know, I forget who was walking around with the peg, the patriarch. Cara Delevingne. There you go. I mean, that was, you know, that's slightly <laughs> more ridiculous. She is an aristocrat as well. Yeah. An aristocratic <laughs> background. Slightly more ridiculous example, but nevertheless, they're very comfortable with this. They've also probably got uh, tax affairs such that they wouldn't be touched mm. by high market tax rate <laughs> in, the, in the US or anywhere else. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> At least some of them. Um, but it, it's also interesting because it's just, it's just a fund, it's a fundamentally unradical proposition in the first place. Just yeah. talking about like, well, you should pay your taxes. It's important, but it's not the, it's not the be all and end all. The fact that she's held up as America's great radical political figure for making a statement like that is interesting. Uh, but it's also the fact that, um, Again, this is not a kind of dangerous message. It's just something which can be easily, it's a kind of form of faux anti-capitalism mm. that can just be so easily absorbed and consumed as pop culture and as by the kind of celebrity elite, if you like. You know, America's, you know, um, think of Tom Wolfe and Radical Sheik, the kind yeah. of, that about uh, high society um, cocktail parties in support of the Black Panthers and all the rest of it and how you have the kind of American elite using radical politics as a kind of fashion accessory. Mm. Like, in th- this is almost like a much more degraded form of that because you have AOC, a much more less radical proposition to begin with, who is literally wearing her politics as a fashion accessory. Yeah. So it's even more degraded, it's even more kind of hollow. And I think whilst people are trying to lend some significance to this, trying to suggest that this was actually a great stand, it just speaks to how unthreatening that form of kind of faux left, but also quite identitarian, allegedly democratic socialist politics in the US is and how easily it can sit mm. amongst the mega rich and the celebrities. So it's really not a, a threat to any of those people in any way, shape or form. I mean, already, I suppose th- this is just us, but the biggest indication of that, because the way that AOC was already embraced by Vogue and, and, and the like, you know, it was, it was a good indication that her politics were fundamentally not very threatening. Ella? Yeah, well, there's this weird sort of disconnect or maybe it's not a disconnect I think it's it is a, a AOC's politics that she thinks this is this is the realm in which change happens so she thinks and the way in which she puts forward her supposedly left-wing views or radical views is that if you make Hollywood stars or like rich people whatever mm. that means uncomfortable then you're doing something radical then you're making change and the, the the crucial thing there is that where is the public where are the people that she's supposed to be talking about about or speaking on behalf of um, or acting in the name of, they're at home watching and meant to applaud her. That's, and, the, and that kind of disconnect between there being absolutely no normal people at the Met Gala other than all the staff who are there wearing masks <laughs> while all the maskless, very pro-mask celebrities are wandering around kissing each other and doing interviews. 
there there is no normal life there and so the extent to which it can be anything other than a stunt that really actually just reifies the status quo is it, it there's there's no potential for it there i mean tom's point about it being a fashion accessory i mean we've seen and we've covered it on spiked for many years now that the political statement has become the clutch bag of the award ceremony yeah. i mean right back in the kind of i was thinking back through all the different expressions there have been and i remember the times up pins from 2018 mm. which is a perfect example i mean it was this kind of it was a bit like the world is on fire from um extinction rebellion it was like times up for the women's movement you know that something has to be done and then the pins get thrown in with the suit back to the dry cleaner and no one remembers anything about it yeah. there's a real disposable nature to these um to these political statements i'm sure that um alexandra Casio cortez will dine out on this on instagram for about a week but then what will happen and Actually, not you know, it's tax. Who is interested in tax, really, in the grand <laughs> yeah. scheme of radical politics? I mean, Jesus, the whole <laughs> thing is a, is a kind of shows what a pantomime so much of the Democrats' radicalism is, and how depressing it is actually for ordinary people watching it, who most of us just want to see some pretty grounds, gowns. That's what the Met Gala is about. It's about costume, and we're not particularly interested in having political lame political messages shoved down our throats tax bureaucrats of the world unite <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time with linkedin jobs we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.